I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we've got a great double feature for you. Later on in the show, we'll be hearing from former CIA analyst and current Cato Institute senior fellow Patrick Eddington about Big Brother surveillance in the United States of America by way of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Specifically, we'll be honing in on the topic of the black identity extremist label that's been used in recent years and whether that label is still being used today to potentially target activists. But first, we're speaking with returning guest Jefferson Morley, a journalist who specializes in topics related to the CIA and also especially the Kennedy assassination. Recently, the fight to obtain the last of the JFK assassination documents has heated up. The Mary Farrell Foundation is now suing the Biden administration and the National Archive to obtain the last of those documents. In addition, Jeff and I will discuss some important revelations about Lee Harvey Oswald and the CIA. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, is this going to be full-blown conspiracy theory territory? Not exactly. Jefferson is only concerned with what's in the documents. He doesn't like to speculate. So, this conversation focuses on what we know. And also on the importance of government transparency, which, regardless of your view on the Kennedy assassination, should be the argument for releasing the final JFK documents. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Jefferson Morley. Welcome 
Welcome back to Parallax Views. Jefferson Morley, a longtime researcher into, I would say, issues related to the CIA, what's been called the deep state, although I think less and less people use that term now. It's been sort of co-opted uh, in a lot of ways. And also the JFK assassination is another subject Jefferson has covered a lot. And he has a lot of updates. He was just at a national press club conference in D.C. Uh, that was... I guess it's related to a, a lawsuit. Yeah. So in October, the Mary Farrell Foundation sued President Biden and the National Archives for failure to enforce the 1992 JFK Records Act. The Mary Farrell Foundation is the sponsor of MaryFarrell.org, which is the website that hosts the largest collection of JFK assassination material and documents on the Internet. Um and so we have, a, uh, and I'm the vice president of the Mary Farrell Foundation. So we have a vested interest. Our mission is completing the historical record of the assassination of JFK's assassination and making it accessible to everybody everywhere. So part of that mission, the failure of the Biden administration and the Trump administration, I might add, to enforce the JFK Records Act has meant that we can't do our job. We cannot fulfill our mission of making the record of the assassination public, which is what Congress clearly intended when it passed the JFK Records Act in 1992. That law was passed, can you believe it, unanimously by the U.S. Congress. It passed 435 to zero in the House, and it was approved by acclamation in the Senate. There was no, not one single objection among elected officials to this legislation when it was passed. Joe Biden, Senator Joe Biden, voted for this bill in 1992. So, you know, this is very clearly the will of the people. Um, that law called for full JFK disclosure by October 2017, except in the rarest of cases. That was a quote, except in the rarest of cases. So that was five years ago. Um, the CIA and the FBI have blown that deadline three times since then. President Trump gave them two extensions. Uh, President Biden gave them one. Um, and so now this Thursday, December 15th, is the deadline that Biden sent last year for full JFK disclosure. So are these agencies going to abide by the law, by the letter and the spirit of the law come, come tomorrow? You know, we will find out. That's what's uh, happening in the news now on the JFK assassination story. So what is the excuse for these documents not being released? Um, like, like, how do you respond to the whole, oh, national security uh, issues? I mean, you know, it it is mostly theoretical and largely specious. I mean, they say, oh, you know, we couldn't compromise the names of living informants. Well, the CIA is withholding 11,275 documents. That's at a minimum. That's Those are assassination-related records that have redactions in them. There are not 11,275 names of living informants in those documents. The names of living informants is a tiny portion of the documents that are being withheld. So that argument doesn't hold water. They say that because nobody wants to betray a living source. But that is, you know, 1% of the redactions involved involve the name of living sources. So that, that claim is wildly overblown. Um, uh, second of all, they've released the names of lots of living sources. I've interviewed dozens of people in Miami who were CIA agents who were outed in CIA records. That's how I found them. None of them ever suffered any consequences. 
the CIA released their names long ago. So, you know, it, that that objection is basically bogus. What the CIA is hiding, and we need to be very frank about this, what the CIA is hiding is actually something very important. They're hiding a lot of trivia, and then they're hiding a few things that are very important. And kind of what their strategy is, is you, you make sure the haystack is really big, right? Because that makes it harder to find the needles. If they, if, they, if, they, if they released all the chaff, right, it would be easier to find the stuff that they want to hide the most. And what they want to hide the most is what people in the intelligence business call sources and methods, which is a euphemism for spying techniques. And what the CIA is protecting is sources and methods around Lee Harvey Oswald, the man who was accused of killing the president. One of the stories that we've learned since the 1990s it hasn't really been digested or by the American people or mainstream media, or frankly, even by the JFK research community, is the CIA knew far, far, far more about Oswald before he allegedly shot Kennedy than they ever admitted to anybody, to any investigation. And that's what they're still hiding, is they're hiding sources and methods around Oswald. So some of these documents that are being withheld a handful of them, not more than a handful, dozens, are very important because they concern this very subject. What did the CIA know about Oswald before the assassination? So that's what they're trying to hide. And you know that's what tomorrow is a test of, is does the president have the authority to compel the CIA to obey the law and release this material, even though it may be very embarrassing to the CIA? You know, and and it's clear, having blown three deadlines, the CIA does not does not want to obey the law in this case. They're doing everything they can to evade the law. So, you know, can Biden make them obey? That's what we'll find out tomorrow. And then, because you discussed this um, lawsuit with, um, is it the Mary Farrell Foundation versus Biden and um, the National Archives? Yeah, so we filed suit in Northern California, which is where we have members, the Mary Farrell Foundation. That's where our attorney, Bill Simpich, practices, and he knows the judges in the federal court out there. So that's why we filed suit there. So we're asking the, 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 the government, the president, and the National Archives to um, <clears throat> review every document as the law requires, and for every document, explain why the interest in withholding the material outweighs the public interest in disclosure. That's something that is required by the law, and the, neither Trump nor Biden required federal agencies to do that in previous releases. So that's one thing that we're asking them to do, is to actually implement the law as it's written, which requires a document-by-document document test. That's one thing. Second, we want um, the, the collection itself physically is a mess. Um, if you want, for example, to look at NSA records related to President Kennedy's assassination. Well, there's a couple of hundred documents that are that have been put into the National Archives. Unfortunately, in the National Archives index of JFK records online, there are no NSA documents listed. So the, the, the very basic act of bookkeeping around JFK records has not been done very well at all. And we want that cleaned up because otherwise the collection is useless. It's not, it's, it's of no use to research if they don't know which documents are in the collection. So, and then finally we want, there are documents that are not in the JFK records collection that, that belong in there by law that are related to the assassination that meet the criteria of assassination related, which is a specific term 
that has a specific legal definition. And the CIA and the FBI have not put these records into the collection. So we want them to do that as well. So there's some there's some housekeeping and there's some real enforcement of the law as part of the lawsuit. I want to get um, into what went on at the um, press conference last week. But first, um, I, I have different listeners that have varying degrees of interest mm-hmm. in the assassination. Some people are fine with the explanation that the Warren Commission came to. Oh, it was awesome. Other people believe that there was a conspiracy. I still think that regardless of what one's view on the Kennedy assassination is, we should have these documents by now, just Every- enough for transparency. Yeah, everybody, everybody thinks that everybody outside that the, the CIA thinks that at the press conference, Fernanda Mondi, who's a pollster in Miami, did a very good nationwide poll of voters coming out of the midterms. And he added some JFK questions to them. And when asked, should Biden order all of the documents released without exception, 70 percent of people said yes. And only about 10 percent said no. 20 percent had no opinion. 70% said yes. And that was true. That that 70% figure cut across Democrats, Republicans, and independents. It cut across regions, Western, Midwestern, Eastern, and Southern. So there, this, there is broad public support for this idea that all of this stuff should be made public now. I was going to say, you've also, I, I think you've dealt with some of the people that um, are more skeptical of um, the, the many theories around Right. Well, look, we, we, we should we should be we, we should be wrong because ninety nine point nine percent of those theories are wrong. Right. By definition, only one thing happened in Dealey Plaza 60 years ago. OK, so if there's 100 theories about Kennedy's assassination, only one of them can be right. Ninety nine percent of them are wrong. That's why I don't study JFK theories, because most of them are clearly wrong. Well, what I was going to say is I know that there's people that you and I have been in contact with, like um, Fred Litwin, who was very against any kind of conspiracies uh, being involved in the Kennedy assassination. Uh, But even he has said, you know, ultimately, these documents need released. Yeah, no, there's no there's no disagreement about that. There's no disagreement about that. So then with uh, regards to the press uh, conference, I, I believe it was at the National Press Club. Um, I guess you and uh, Judge John R. Tynheim? Uh, Tynheim, yeah. Yeah. Could you talk about uh, what you spoke about there, the issues you both covered, and maybe who John is, uh, because he's a big name. Uh, he was involved yeah. in the ARRB. So Rex Bradford, the president of the Mary Farrell Foundation, talked about the foundation's work in the lawsuit. Larry Schnapp is one of our lead attorneys. He talked about kind of the legality, the legal strategy behind the lawsuit. Judge Tunheim, Judge John Tunheim, is the senior judge in the Minneapolis Federal Circuit Court in in Minneapolis. And in the 1990s, he was the chair of the Assassination Records Review Board, which was a five-member panel, which was empowered, created and empowered by the JFK Records Act to review and release JFK records. And um, at the time, he was a judge in Minnesota. The other members of the panel were all independent of the government. Um, from the American Bar Association, American Library Association, and so on. All of the members of that of that board have died except for Judge Tunheim. So he came to the press conference to explain his experience with trying to get records out of the government and to make the case to President Biden and to the public that all of these records should be released. And um, he followed up with a very strong letter 
to President Biden, which I published on my website, JFK Facts on Substack, um, in which he said to the president, all of this stuff should be released immediately. So he adds a lot of authority because he is somebody who spent four years looking at JFK records, thinking about whether they should be made public or not. He enforced that law. So we brought him into the press conference because we think he's particularly credible on that question of should these documents be released? And he could not have been more clear. They should be released tomorrow, period. Could you talk a little bit about um, some of the other issues covered there? Specifically, you know, one of the things we hear is, oh, there's there's nothing new left to see with these documents. But I want you to absolutely on. Not, that's absolutely right. not true. Well, no, no, I know it's not true. I wanted you to get into. Yeah, yeah. So what the, what the CIA is hiding, what the CIA is hiding is sources and methods around Lee Harvey Oswald, what they knew about the accused assassin before the assassination. But I, I meant, could you get into that in detail, just a little bit of detail yeah, okay. on what they so, knew? So, so, so what they're hiding is um, the involvement of um, a CIA-funded group um, called the Cuban Student Directorate, the Directorio Revolucionario Estudantil, was a CIA-funded group, militantly anti-Castro, um, anti-Kennedy as well, um, with a knack for generating headlines that made the president look bad. Um, in the summer of 1963, the members of that group had a series of encounters with Lee Harvey Oswald, the accused assassin, in New Orleans. And what they did was they served to create a public image of Oswald as a Castro supporter. Before August 1st, 1963, Oswald had no public profile as a supporter of the Cuban government or a pro-Castro group known as the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. 30 days later, after his encounters with the CIA's propaganda assets in New Orleans, the CIA, the FBI, and the largest TV and radio station in New Orleans had a record in the form of film audio and newspaper headlines about Oswald, the pro-Castro supporter. That, that activity in New Orleans in 1963 was the result of a CIA psychological warfare operation. And we know one of the men who was involved in it, a deceased undercover officer who handled this group, the Cuban Student Directorate, the DRE. It had a code name in the CIA of AMSPEL, AMSPEL. And this group was funded by the CIA to the tune of about $50,000 a month, which is worth about $500,000 a month today. So, you know, they were in favor at the CIA. And this whole story of how they created the legend of Oswald the Castro supporter has been hidden for 60 years. And that's what they're hiding today. So it was hidden from the Warren Commission. It was hidden from the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And as Judge Tunheim said at the press conference on Tuesday, last Tuesday, it was hidden from the JFK Review Board in the 1990s, 1998. So this is a story that the CIA is determined, determined to bury and to make sure that we never learn. So the stakes are very high to me because they are hiding something very significant about the assassination story. And that's their use of Oswald for intelligence purposes before Kennedy was killed. This is the story that they want to hide. So, uh, in other words, Oswald would have been operating as a CIA asset in New Orleans three months before the assassination. You know, what his state of mind is is impossible to determine, and it's it's actually not that important. CIA operations incorporate people in witting, semi-witting, and unwitting roles all the time. That's part of 
how you mount an operation is that you're not entirely, you know, clear with the people you're working with. Um, there's different kinds of relationships that, that, that CIA officers have in using running agents. You can have an agent who is directed at a very specific task. You can have an agent of influence who's somebody who can help you, you know, but maybe you can't rely on them all the time. So, you know, Oswald was a figure of great interest to senior CIA officials in 1963 before the assassination. We know that from the declassification of the CIA's Oswald file, which did not happen incidentally until 2001. It only took 38 years to release the file of the alleged lone gunman. Um, so, you know, we know where the documents are, we know where the story is, and we have the broad outlines of it. You know, the question is, can we get the whole story? So uh, before we start wrapping up, I guess, uh, maybe you could go into why uh, you feel so connected to this case and what what is your stake in this? Why do you feel so strongly about the JFK assassination? I mean, you know, it's it, 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 it's the turning point in American in the, uh, a turning point in American history. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that was very influential to me was the what Harry Truman wrote one month after the assassination when he called for the abolition of the CIA. Now. Truman never said the CIA was responsible for the assassination, but his immediate response to the assassination was, we need to get rid of this organization, an organization that he had signed into existence as president in 1947. So that's a very serious critique from somebody who knew more about the reality of the CIA than any of us. And so, you know, that was a very important moment. And if we look at, uh, you know, what Kennedy wanted to do in the Cold War, what he wanted to do in Cuba and in Vietnam, you know, he was trying to wind down the Cold War. He, he was rhetorically very hawkish. But by 1963, after the experience of the Cuban Missile Crisis, he was clearly moving towards some form of what would be called detente. He, no, he negotiated the limited test ban treaty with the Soviet Union. He cracked down on Cuban exiles attacking Castro. He proposed going to the moon with the Soviet Union in 1963. His, his, his administration had a distinctively liberal cast in 1963. And that provoked harsh criticism from the upper echelons of the CIA and the Pentagon. That there's no there's no question about that. So after he was killed, you know, and there was no real investigation of the assassination, nobody at the CIA lost their job, not even people who were writing and reading and thinking about the alleged assassin six weeks before Kennedy was killed. None of them lost their jobs because nobody knew how much they knew about the alleged lone gunman. So, you know, there was no accountability, which meant that there was impunity. And with, with the rise of impunity, you know, the CIA's abuses multiplied. And they weren't really called in to, to check for another decade. It wasn't until the mid-1970s, after the scandals of Watergate and defeat in Vietnam, that the CIA was really investigated for the first time. So for me, this is a turning point in American history where, you know, Kennedy was the road not taken. And we didn't have, you know, we didn't have real accountability. So I was always intrigued by the story because it's terrifically complicated. It's incredibly dramatic. Um, the scale of wrongdoing since then has been massive. So, you know, it's a real good story, you know, um, and it and it and it's a better story 
than any conspiracy theory holds. You know, the story of what actually happened, the facts, not the theories, is what's really incredible. And that's what we're trying to get to the bottom of now. I also wanted to ask, um, are there any other specific uh, issues related to the Kennedy assassination that you think people should think about more? I, I'm specifically thinking about something you brought up um, at the press conference, which was, uh, you know, um, Deputy Director Helms uh, giving sort of false testimony to the Warren Commission. Well, that's that's part and parcel of the story. That's how they hid the sources and methods around Oswald was through false testimony and um, and false statements to investigators. And that was one of the most egregious when Deputy Director Helms told the Warren Commission that the, the CIA's knowledge about Oswald before the assassination was probably minimal. That's a, that's a demonstrably false statement. They knew an incredible amount about Oswald, his politics, his personal life, his travels, his foreign contacts. They were even reading his mail. So, you know, so Helms lied. He lied under oath in the investigation of the murder of a president. I mean, you know, draw your own conclusions about what that means. So then, is there anything else we should delve into briefly here uh, that you think listeners should know in regards to uh, the Kennedy assassination? Because I think a lot of people will get tied up in sensationalistic claims. So what do you think the most important bullet points are? They're hiding sources and methods around Lee Harvey Oswald before the assassination, period. That's the most important story that's out there. Um, it's the story that they've lied about from the start and that they're going to they're going to keep trying to hide it, you know, to this day, and maybe they can prevail over President Biden, although I hope that's not the case. But that's the whole of the story. And there's no theory here. We know the files exist. We know the activity around Oswald happened. And we know that the, the documents that they're withholding, and we know, we know something about their nature. So we're actually close to a real break in the case. And we can get beyond the conspiratorial BS, 95% of which is BS. And, and actually get to the real story of what happened. Uh, also, could you talk about, there was a former CIA official um, officer that commented at the um, press conferences, Rolf uh, Mowat Larson. Larson. Yeah. Could you talk about Rolf, his testimony? Yeah, R Rolf Mowat Larson is a retired CIA officer, held very senior positions, briefed President Bush, um, station chief in Moscow, you know, senior position. And Rolf, um, is an iconoclastic thinker. He's at, now teaches at Harvard. And um, he gave a talk on the JFK assassination a few years ago that um, in Dallas that I saw and I thought was quite brilliant and, and really crystallized my thinking about how the assassination was organized. And so I asked him to comment on the story that, that I presented at the press conference about how the CIA had manipulated Oswald in New Orleans. And he said, you know, this is a great story and we need to get to the bottom of this. He and I disagree about the causes of the assassination. He sees more of a, a rogue plot. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not I'm not sure about that. I don't, I don't know what level of government, you know, since I don't know who the conspirators were, I can't say, you know, what level of government they were at. Um, but that, you know, that's a kind of secondary difference. I think his methodology as an intelligence professional is incredibly strong and persuasive and something that people should pay attention to. I certainly do. So then with regards to tomorrow, um, if if Biden doesn't get these last of the documents out, uh, where does the Mary Farrell Foundation go from here? Well, we filed the lawsuit precisely because we're not waiting around for the goodwill of the president or the CIA or the National Archives. 
we want the courts to step in and enforce the law because we believe the law is quite clear. So, you know, uh, I think that we will not get all, we will not get full disclosure tomorrow. That's the most likely scenario. The CIA is determined to defy the law and, and they're so determined that I think that, that, that determination is gonna continue after tomorrow. But, you know, uh, our attitude is see in court. We're gonna litigate this and we're gonna get these documents. You know, that's what the law requires. So we have the law on our side we have the information on our side. And increasingly, I think people are understanding what this one thing I'm seeing now is, you know, we actually have the media on our side. You know, the media used to demonize people like me as a conspiracy theorist. Doesn't really work because I don't have a conspiracy theory. You, and, you mean and, not not just the alternative media, you mean like the mainstream media? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and you know, and and the right wing is trying to weaponize this story. We've noticed that this week because they they want to use the JFK story as a way of beating up on Joe Biden, which is not a desire that we have. We took no pleasure. I took no pleasure in suing the president. We had to sue the president because he's the only guy who can solve the problem. So we don't want to politicize this. We don't have any argument with you know pro-Trump people who want the truth about JFK. We welcome them to our cause. That's I was going to say you were just on Glenn Beck's show. Uh, yeah, discussing. no, that's fine. I, I, there's no culture war around JFK's assassination. Okay, there isn't. Everybody agrees on this one. We're not going to argue about it. Okay, so you know that's where we're at. Most people are in favor of this. The law is in favor of it. So you know, let let's get it done. Last question. Um, uh, well, I guess this ties into what you were saying. Uh, what do you think about the press coverage? of uh, the Mary Farrell Foundation press conference and how, well, how know, the media has handled this. I, I would say we have the credibility now. Our credibility is greater than the government's because, you know, mainstream news organizations from Fox to CNN to CBS to NBC are coming to us and saying, you know, what's going on? Why are they still withholding this stuff? And, you know, and we have a factual, non-conspiratorial, very well-informed answer. And the CIA doesn't. So, What's, what's happened in the last year is the Mary Farrell Foundation has gained the credibility um, at, that the government doesn't have. And so I, that's a very positive sign in terms of pressurizing the CIA and the FBI to obey the law. You know, they're not going to do this out of the goodness of their hearts. They're going to do it because they're scared of the consequences of not doing it. And with, the, with, with public opinion on our side and the media on our side, the cost to them of continuing to defy the law in defiance of the vast majority of public opinion, right, left, and center, those costs are rising. And that's gonna force them eventually to obey the law. That's what we believe. So I, I don't want you to speculate, but what do you think will come out with the last of the documents? I mean, are we looking at a conspiracy, a cover-up, or, I mean, it could be anything, right? I come back to my main point. It's about the CIA's sources and methods around Oswald. The manipulation of Oswald before the assassination. That's the one story that they're hiding. That's the one story that will eventually come out. It's not more complicated than that. Skip all the other theories. That's the point here. And I'm I'm sorry if I'm 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 sort of forcing you to reiterate that point so much. No, no, but no, no that's fine. That's fine. It, it needs reiterating. Is there anything else you'd like to say in closing? And how can my listeners uh support the work you're doing and the Murray Farrell Foundation are doing? Well, um, uh, you can keep up with the breaking news on JFK at, at jfkfacts.substack.com. If you want to support the work, you can subscribe. It's not very expensive, six bucks a month. Um, 
You can support the Mary Farrell Foundation and, um, and its attorneys, and those contributions are tax deductible. You can find them at maryferrell.org, and that's Mary, F-E-R-R-E-L-L dot O-R-G. And uh, people should look around that site and educate themselves about the assassination story. That's the best place to get good, solid, verified, important information about the assassination. There's no better place on the internet than there. Thank you again, Jefferson Morley, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you for having me. Next up, Patrick Eddington, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute and former CIA analyst, joins us to discuss his article at antiwar.com entitled, Is the FBI's Black Identity Extremist Label Still in Use? Additionally, we'll be dealing with other issues related to the American surveillance state and the FBI, with a focus on issues like the history of COINTELPRO and the targeting of black activists in the 20th century, the FBI's history of targeting left-wing activists, and the modern surveillance of Chinese Americans. All that more in the conversation to follow with the Cato Institute's Patrick Eddington. Welcome to Parallax Views, Patrick G. Eddington, Senior Fellow in Homeland Security and Civil Liberties at the Cato Institute. How are you doing today? Good. Yourself? Very good. Very good. And I was interested in talking with you after finding an article uh, that was carried on antiwar.com entitled, Is the FBI's Black Identity Extremist Label Still in Use? Um, it's interesting. We haven't heard about the Black Identity Extremist Label for a few years, but maybe you could give uh, some of my audiences a refresher on that label and what it means for the FBI. Yeah, so um, this is a, a particular uh, appellation, if you will, that the Bureau came up with um, not only to describe, you know, Black Lives Matter activists and, and related groups, um, but it, it's the kind of label um, that the Bureau has used essentially in one fashion or another, going all the way back to the Marcus Garvey era in the 1920s. Um, so it, it's, it's changed a little bit over the years. They allegedly got rid of this uh, particular designation uh, after they came under intense criticism, of course, uh, not just from the media, but from the Congressional Black Caucus and, and other um, you know, civil rights uh, activist groups. And, you know, Director Ray, uh, Chris Ray, the current director of the FBI, had testified before Congress, uh, as I indicated, uh, in the 2019 period, basically saying, no, we got rid of it. You know, we don't use that term anymore. Um, and here at Cato, you know, we have a very large, very active Freedom Information Act program that's underway. And and part of that program is basically focused on trying to figure out exactly, among other things, uh, what the FBI is doing to spy on domestic uh, civil society organizations. Um, this is basically, you know, political surveillance that we're concerned about. And you know, one of the things that I was interested in finding out uh, was exactly, um, you know, what kinds of of so-called case classifications the FBI was still using that might fall, you know, under this rubric. And for those who are not familiar with it, the FBI uses this so-called classification system. Um, it, it's a numeric system running from one all the way up through we don't know at least eight hundred. I think it's even higher than that. Uh, and within 
those within that numeric range is how they basically break out, you know, what kind of alleged infraction or actual violation of a federal statute. So, for example, um, uh, cl a classification 44 case, um, you know, would involve a, a particular uh, kind of activity. If I remember correctly, that's actually a civil rights violation. Uh, a classification nine case is a threat to an individual. Oftentimes, it's a member of Congress. Classification 89 is actually tied to a specific statutory uh, provision about uh, threatening the president, uh, members of Congress, and, so, and other federal officials, and so on and so forth. But within this whole arena of domestic intelligence for decades, um, this classification 100 was the big one they used for so-called domestic security. And this is the one that they applied to you know, any manner, essentially, of uh, domestic civil society organization that was essentially challenging the prevailing political socioeconomic paradigm. Uh, but as time has gone on, the number of classifications have increased. And uh, if you go to the FBI website today, you won't even find a page where these things are listed. They actually took it down. And so what we managed to do at Cato uh, is through the Freedom of Information Act, get a lot of these uh, classifications uh, in our hands. Uh, there's an actual guide, essentially, that the FBI uses internally for this stuff. And what we noticed as a result of one of our FOIA lawsuits uh, earlier this year was that this 266K classification uh, for domestic terrorism was being utilized. And so when we uh, cross-referenced that with the actual FBI classification guide, we discovered that that was the designation they were using for so-called black identity extremists, which they had supposedly gotten rid of. Um, so we wanted to make sure that we brought that to folks' attention uh, so that uh, any members of Congress, especially who are interested in pursuing this issue, would have an opportunity to do it. But I should point out that they have designations for white supremacists, sovereign citizens, um, envir so-called environmental terrorists, animal rights so-called terrorists, and so on and so forth. So it's it's quite the system they have for trying to categorize you, me, and everybody else. I was going to ask, so is there an issue where, isn't there a replacement term now instead of black identity extremists? I think in the article you talk about, I think they use the term black separatist extremists, right? Yeah, that that is that's another term that has been used. Uh, that's also basically in, uh, you know, in their guide, um, and they've actually now started using this phrase "racially motivated violent extremism" or RMVE, in which they lump essentially everybody together in that category. So an Aryan circle would be in there, um, Aryan nations would be in there. Uh, National Socialist Movement would be in there. The Klan, of course, would be in there. But also, you know, the so-called black separatist extremist, uh, which is the term of, of art that they've been using, uh, they're all lumped under this, you know, umbrella. And and that is really kind of deceiving, you know, in a fundamental way, because we know that the vast majority of violence that's committed for racial reasons in this country is, in fact, committed by, you know, white supremacists, folks that are affiliated with the Klan or, you know, more modern groups like Patriot Front, some of the rest of these. Um, so I, I think it does a disservice, essentially, to the African-American community when they when the FBI basically tries to lump everybody together, you know, in just one racially motivated violent extremist category. It, it, it makes it sound like, you know, everybody's equally bad. And that's that's just simply not the case. I wanted to ask. And I'm not trying to play devil's advocate too much here because I think this is like a very real issue that you're speaking to. But I, there are sort of um, black separatist groups that I think have been in the news 
um, a little bit more lately, especially with uh, the, the talk of, you know, anti-Semitism being on the rise. Uh, groups like the, the Black Hebrew Israelites or people that associate with that, and some of them do seem to engage in, in violence at times. So how do we deal with that without, um, I guess, this this kind of broad racial profiling? Like, is there another approach that could be taken? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really very simple at the end of the day. Um, the FBI needs to be focused on actual criminal acts or conspiracies to commit criminal acts. That's what they need to be focused on. They shouldn't be focused on speech. Uh, they, they shouldn't be focused on, you know, what is First Amendment protected activity. And, and I, I want to make it clear, you know, I, I don't have, uh, you know, any any fond regard whatsoever uh, you know, for any extremist groups uh, that engage, you know, in, in the use of, of hateful rhetoric and, and so on and so forth. But the reality is, under the Supreme Court's 1969 decision in Brandenburg v. Ohio, the court made it very clear that, and this was a case involving uh, the Ku Klux Klan uh, in Ohio, um, just saying bad things, saying hateful things by itself is not necessarily an indicator that somebody is going to then turn around and move to the next step of violence. You know, the court made it very clear that they had a test here, and that test was, it's got to be speech that is designed to incite violence imminently, right? And I think that's that's where the FBI, more often than not, makes really serious mistakes, is that when they're vacuuming up, for example, using social media, when they're vacuuming up all this uh, the social media traffic, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's Instagram, you know, Parler, whatever, you know, take take your pick, and necessarily, you know, arriving at conclusions that just because somebody says something that appears to be a threat, that it actually constitutes a real threat, you know, that's a problem. You know, we're talking about fundamentally protected speech here. There are a lot of people that will say a lot of crazy things, a lot of very derogatory things on social media. A lot of people do that anonymously. And I I, I think that it's uh, abysmal. I mean, I, I like to refer to it essentially as anti-social media these days, because that's pretty much what it feels like. But in order to have a functioning First Amendment, we need to know that you, you can't just, you know, find the speech of people that you like to be acceptable. You know, the First Amendment is specifically designed to protect speech that a lot of folks might find objectionable, ideas that a lot of folks might find objectionable. So the real issue fundamentally has got to be a level of imminent violence or an, an, an incitement to imminent, uh, imminent violence. And I should point out that you know, this is not a new idea. Um, the late executive director of the ACLU, Roger Baldwin, um, you know, made this very point in 1930 to the Fish Committee, uh, named after Hamilton Fish, a uh, House member from New York when the Fish Committee was basically engaged in an effort to try to paint the ACLU as acting on behalf of communist and you know, other so-called undesirable elements. And, and the point that Baldwin made in that, uh, in that hearing is ultimately the standard that the Supreme Court set in 1969. And I think it's a very important one. You know, um, We have a lot of folks out there um, that have got a lot of strong feelings and strong feelings and strong speech is one thing, but what we should never tolerate is anything that leads to an actual violent act or an, an incitement to imminent violence, if you will. So it's interesting uh, because uh, beyond just the First Amendment and free speech issues at work, uh, you know, I, I know you you you're a former CIA analyst, so you, you have uh, some knowledge about the, the intelligence world. And one thing I wanted to get into, you mentioned that the FBI is sort of vacuuming up 
all this information. And in a way, I wonder, does this cause them to actually be put in like a trying to find a needle in a haystack situation where, you know, taking in all that information and vacuuming it up is actually um, making them more ineffective in some ways in actually dealing with the real threats? No, that that's absolutely correct. You know, they're they're creating their own haystack, so to speak. Um, and they're not the only agency that that has done that. You know, when Keith Alexander was the director of the National Security Agency, he was infamous for this mentality of collect it all. Well, if you're collecting it all, it means that you actually don't know what you're doing. It, it, it means that you're not actually really trying to focus on legitimate threats and follow up on legitimate leads. And and I I just like to go back, you know, to a particular New York Times piece that ran uh, in October of 2022. This is actually from the uh, October 6th uh, edition of, of the New York Times. And there was a particular individual, his name was Rashid, um, who was really concerned about Stuart Rhodes, you know, the, the Oath Keepers uh, founder and leader. Um, and, and he had told uh, apparently a number of people and ultimately the FBI that Rhodes had said, and I'm quoting now from the piece, we're not getting out of this without a fight. There's going to be a fight, but let's just do it smart and let's do it while President Trump is still commander in chief, end quote. And what the Times said in this piece, and I think this is very important because it goes directly to your point, while Mr. Rashid initially called an FBI tip line to complain about Mr. Rhodes not long after the meeting took place, and this was several months before the attempted coup in January of, of 2021, the Bureau did not reach out to him until March of 2021, two months after the Capitol was attacked. He also tried to warn other law enforcement agencies, he testified, writing to Capitol Police that Mr. Rhodes was, quote, a friggin' wacko that the Oath Keepers would be better without, end quote. So this is a prime example of, of an FBI intelligence failure that was completely avoidable. Here was a guy who was directly involved with the Oath Keepers, directly present when, when Rhodes was making a lot of these kinds of statements. He was thus in a position you know, to tell the FBI, you really need to be taking a very close look at this guy. Um, and they didn't do it. They, they failed to follow up. And we've seen that in so many of these circumstances. A lot of folks, you know, probably forgotten by now uh, that it's been not quite two years ago that we had uh, a Christmas Day bombing in Nashville, right? Now, fortunately, nobody was killed, but we find out after the fact in that particular case that local police authorities had been warned by this bomber's girlfriend that he was making bombs in his trailer on his property. Uh, and and the Tennessee police, you know, failed to investigate. They they failed to actually get a warrant. Here you had somebody with direct knowledge, eyewitness knowledge uh, of uh, improvised explosive devices being manufactured uh, at this particular uh, residence, and and they failed to act. So it's those kinds of things, frankly, that as a former intelligence officer, make my head explode. You know, this these are these are the kinds of tips that should be acted upon. They should be acted on immediately. Uh, and and the failure to do so is simply compounded by this vacuuming up of information. It's not just social media, of course. Um, they try to get geolocation information. They go to data brokers, uh, uh, companies like Palantir and the like. Um, it goes on and on and on and on. And and the notion that collecting more data is necessarily going to get you the bad guy is just um, it's bad tradecraft. I also wanted to ask um, if you could speak a little bit to. Uh, how the FBI has dealt with uh, black activists in the past, um, because you know sometimes I will mention COINTELPRO on this pr uh, program, and it's funny because I still meet people that if they haven't heard about it before, they just assume, oh, this is some conspiracy theory. But I mean, 
all of the stuff with COINTELPRO is confirmed. Yeah, with respect to, to COINTELPRO, this is a, a particular activity that began under President Eisenhower in uh, August of 1956. Uh, it was a specific memo that was written, uh, a proposal, if you will, uh, to J. Edgar Hoover by one of his chief lieutenants. I believe it was Alan Belmont. And the proposal was essentially to not only engage in surveillance of, of civil rights organizations, but also uh, at this point, of course, the Communist Party. Uh, the CPUSA was a major obsession of J. Edgar Hoover uh, and his lieutenants, despite the fact that it was totally ineffectual. Um, but in any event, they were looking for ways to disrupt, further disrupt the CPUSA. And so the idea was not just to simply engage in surveillance, but to actively begin to plant rumors and do things of that nature, so-called disruption operations, that would be designed essentially to cause internal friction and infighting within the CPUSA to help it disintegrate, if you will. Now, these are, of course, exactly the kind of tactics that totalitarian governments use uh, and have used in the past. And what began as one particular uh, so-called counterintelligence program, or COINTELPRO, targeting the CPUSA ultimately morphed into about a dozen programs. And of course, the, one of the most infamous ones was aimed directly uh, at Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, among others. But the Students for a Democratic Society would be targeted you know, with this particular program. The whole, the whole uh, so-called New Left uh, would be targeted with this program uh, and so on and so forth. And this, of course, uh, only came to light as a result of uh, a very intrepid group of Pennsylvania citizens, eight of them, uh, in early 1971, making the rather bold decision to commit a felony by breaking into the local FBI resident agency. Uh, think of it as like a satellite office of an FBI field office in Philadelphia to break into that particular facility and liberate essentially all the FBI documents. The activists that were involved in that action called themselves the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI. And most of them were of the opinion, correctly, you know, as it turned out, that because of their anti-war activities and the like, that they had been targeted by the FBI or their friends and, and co-workers had been targeted by the FBI. So they liberated literally thousands of documents. Uh, when, when Hoover found out, of course, his head exploded, um, it was the biggest FBI investigation in history up to that point in time. They never found the eight. Um, it remained a secret uh, literally up to just the last decade or so about who was actually involved in it. And there's a wonderful documentary about the whole episode called 1971. And I heartily, heartily recommend it. It is extraordinarily well done. And the book uh, about the episode written by former Washington Post uh, reporter uh, Betty Metzger is called The Burglary. Uh, an excellent read. Just absolutely great, you know, American history Um in, in one very, very readable book. And, and so uh, it was one document ultimately out of that batch that came to the attention of NBC News justice correspondent Carl Stern. And that document had the word COINTELPRO on it. And so Stern put in a FOIA, a Freedom of Information Act request, and the Bureau initially denied it. NBC sued. Long story short, this is how the first batch of about 50,000 or so pages uh, on COINTELPRO would ultimately become public. And of course, that then led to congressional investigations. This is how we get the, the church committee uh, led by Senator Frank Church of Idaho uh, involved in looking at this program and, and so on and so forth. So um, one of the most scandalous episodes uh, in American history in terms of political surveillance, maybe still the most scandalous, 
Um, every single FBI field office was involved in it. And if you step back and think about it, this program ran from 1956 to at least 1971. And not a single person at the FBI ever had a problem with it to the point that they would actually go to, you know, somebody in Congress and say, do you really think we ought to be doing this? It never happened. You know, it took a group of citizens to break the law in order to expose these violations of constitutional rights. An incredible episode. I just had one or two more questions. I guess uh, the first is uh, something I will always hear when we're talking about issues of potential FBI overreach or abuse of power is, you know, no, it's not the, the same as it was under J. Edgar Hoover. It's not the days of J. Edgar Hoover that we're living under. Uh, how do you respond to that when people say that that kind of abuse of power and overreach is uh, a thing of the past? You know, part of our problem is there's been no real probing examination of the FBI's and systematic probing examination of the FBI's investigative tactics and activities since the church committee itself in, in the mid-1970s. It just simply hasn't happened. Um, we have, however, multiple examples of FBI overreach, and, and the most uh, uh, widespread one that, that we have you know, excellent documentation on was the FBI's investigation, uh, years-long investigation, of the Committee in Solidarity with the people of El Salvador. This happened during the Reagan administration. And I think it's worth noting that this investigation of CISPIS, as it was called, began literally less than a decade after the Church Committee's uh, hearings and, and the legislative reforms that were enacted in that period. In that period, of course, we get the creation of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. Um, we get the passage of the Inspector General Act. Um, we get the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act passed and all the rest of that. But the one thing that did not happen was the creation of a, of a legislative charter to actually prohibit the FBI from engaging in COINTELPRO type activities. Uh, and that happened because uh, President Ford's Attorney General, Edward Levy, issued what were known then as the initial uh, Attorney General guidelines on FBI domestic uh, investigations. And that literally had the effect of taking the wind out of the sails of any kind of legislative effort uh, in the House and Senate to get that charter passed. I mean, that there would be efforts that, that would happen. Uh, the late Senator Inouye would continue to try to make it happen, essentially, for several years after that. Um, but by the early 1980s, you know, the steam had literally run out of that effort. And the Bureau, through, through what they did in CISPUS, was right back at it again. And that, that was a major investigation, a major scandal for the Bureau. Again, it was a nationwide investigation, uh, wound up targeting hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals and organizations that were opposed to the Reagan administration's policies in Central America. Um, so, you know, that's the most well-documented one, but we have a lot of other examples, uh, specific episodes of FBI overreach. Uh, we can go back to the Iraq War of 2003, when we know that they were spying on the Thomas Merton Center uh, in Pennsylvania, for example, uh, and other anti-war groups, you know, throughout the country. And, you know, to that end, uh, to that point, in fact, the FOIA program that I run here at Cato is designed explicitly to try to find exactly that kind of data. And, and we have found, you know, quite a bit, quite frankly. Um, most people don't know that the FBI can open an investigation on a person or a group without ever having to go to a federal judge and get permission to do it. Um, this was a change that occurred in December of 2008 when Michael Mukasey uh, was still attorney general under the Bush 43 administration. And the attorney general guidelines that Mukasey issued in December of 2008 created an entirely new category of so-called proto-investigation 
known as an assessment. And under assessment, uh, the FBI does not have to have probable cause to open one. They just have to have a, a so-called authorized purpose. Well, guess who gets to decide what the authorized purpose is? The FBI. <laughs> Right. It's a it's a great gig if you can get it. You know, I mean, it, it's a it's a, a jobs program. There's no question about that. But they can run confidential informants against you. They can get, conduct physical surveillance against you. They can uh, utilize commercial and classified databases to collect information on you. And they can do this basically indefinitely. I mean, they have to get these things reapproved at certain you know intervals. But that's almost invariably uh, a rubber stamp type operation. And we know that. Because additional FOIA litigation that Cato has done, looking at what the FBI's own inspection division has found with respect to the abuse of these kinds of authorities between 2013 and, and 2019, hundreds and hundreds of abuses of that very authority. So um, is it going on at the same scale that it was uh, in the church committee era? My guess is it's probably actually even greater because we live in the digital age. Um, and their ability to get, you know, phone records in mass. We know that from Edward Snowden, uh, their ability to, you know, utilize commercial databases as well as other databases they have access to. They can kind of create a, a de facto digital gulag uh, around you or the organization that you happen to work for or work with without you even knowing it. Uh, and I think that's one of the scarier things about the age that we live in. But we need, quite frankly, a church committee 2.0. We need a much more probing investigation. I mean, I'm glad to say that, uh, you know, through some of our efforts here at Cato, Representative uh, Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland, and Representative Nancy Mace, Republican of South Carolina, have asked the Government Accountability Office to conduct an investigation of the FBI's use or misuse of assessments. Uh, and that particular job is underway, as we understand it. And that's going to be the first actual look at how the FBI has done its business since the Church Committee era. So we expect that report to be out probably sometime late next year. Well, that that's good um, for the possibility of reforms taking place. Uh, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you was, uh, we've talked about uh, Black activists being targeted by the FBI, but this doesn't just affect necessarily uh, Black activists or even just people on the left. I mean, I, I myself would say that I lean leftward politically, but I'm assuming uh, this kind of surveillance can affect uh, people from both sides of the <clears throat> political spectrum. Could you speak to that? Well, I, I would say that, you know, historically, you're right. Um, the vast majority of the targets of the FBI have been folks on the left. Uh, and for those who may not have heard, uh, Yale historian Beverly Gage uh, has a new book out. Uh, it is probably going to be the definitive biography of J. Edgar Hoover. It's called G-Man. Um, and I, I'm reading it now, and I heartily recommend it because it, it gets to this issue, essentially, of, of how Hoover was able to stay in place for five decades at the FBI and kind of create this very ultimately kind of politically conservative culture uh, at the Bureau <clears throat> that made it much more likely to go after groups on the left. Now, that being said, um, during President uh, Franklin Roosevelt's time in office, he didn't hesitate to use the FBI to go, to go after his political enemies, both within his own party and the Republican Party. Um, so, and that's that's been a feature, was a feature certainly at least up through President Nixon. Um, but there's there's no question that, you know, some folks on the right have been targeted. And I would say that um, even much more recently, uh, when uh, Jim Jordan, representative, uh, Republican representative from Ohio, he and some of his colleagues managed to get their hands on an FBI internal document, uh, a counterterrorism and uh, counterintelligence division document, 
that indicated that the Bureau was looking at, at uh, parents uh, going to school board meetings, uh, complaining about, let's say, COVID mandates, uh, mass mandates, things of that nature. Um, there's actually a document. I mean, it's a letterhead document that they managed to get out. And I will tell you that when we asked for that from the FBI, the FBI claimed, quote, no responsive documents, end quote. Naturally, we've appealed that because we know that that's a lie. We know that that's absolutely false. But the idea that the FBI would be out there, you know, going after, uh, you know, parents who are going to school board meetings. And, you know, look, I, I understand that emotions have run high, you know, on both sides with respect to COVID mandates and mass mandates and all the rest of that kind of thing. Um, but to just instantly jump to the conclusion that because a parent goes and expresses perhaps very, very vehemently, maybe with a lot of profanity at a school board meeting, their opposition you know, to a particular school board policy does not mean that that parent is going to be the next Timothy McVeigh or Muhammad Atta. Uh, and so to jump to that kind of conclusion, you know, is just simply outrageous. And so I, I understand why, you know, folks are concerned about that. Um, but I, I don't think there's any question that as a general rule, you know, what what we have seen historically with the Bureau is a very heavy tilt, you know, towards going after folks uh, on the left. And that's why they've come in for a lot of criticism, especially with regards to a lot of white supremacist groups. And it, it's very embarrassing. I think it should be incredibly embarrassing to Mr. Ray, the head of the FBI, that the Bureau has known literally for at least 20 years that an awful lot of folks in law enforcement are at a minimum sympathetic to white supremacists, if not actively involved in, in those kinds of organizations in one fashion or another. I, I was just going to add real quick. I mean, what, what's embarrassing to me is that, I mean, we're talking a lot now about the threat of white supremacist terrorism, but this has been an issue for decades now, going back to, you know, in, in the Reagan years, we had groups like the Bruderschwagen or the the Order uh, committing assassinations of, of like radio G DJs like Alan Berg. This has yeah. been with us for a while, and it feels like it hasn't always been... Um, dealt with in, in the most responsible manner. No, I, and I think if you, you know, you go back and you look at what the white citizens councils uh, were doing, you know, in Southern states, uh, you know, during the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and, and the pressure that Hoover ultimately came under, you know, to do a lot more, this is especially true, uh, you know, when, when Lyndon Johnson, uh, you know, took office after President Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, the murders that took place in Mississippi and elsewhere were a giant embarrassment to the FBI. Uh, and it still took enormous pressure from Johnson and others to actually get Hoover to act uh, and, and to begin to, you know, actually do something about it. And even with that, you know, the, the Bureau has continued in many cases to take a much harder look uh, at African-Americans, at Chinese-Americans, uh, at Arab and Muslim-Americans. Uh, then they have an awful lot of these other groups. That's not to say that the Bureau hasn't accumulated data on the Oath Keepers, Patriot Front, um, uh, the National Socialist Movement, and you know a lot of other organizations. But I don't believe that there's ever been nearly the level of internal interest or emphasis uh, on looking at those groups and looking at you know evidence of, of individuals specifically, uh, you know potentially. Uh, looking to conduct assassinations as, as you referenced or you know commit other kinds of violent acts so i, I think that uh it, it's obviously something that's long overdue for a very very uh, hard look um you know whether or not the existing uh powers that be here in washington are actually going to you know do what's necessary in order to kind of get that problem under control 
you know, I don't know, but I, I posted something on my Medium account a few weeks ago, you know, kind of talking about this issue. And, and I think the biggest concern that I have, and I think the single biggest uh, reform effort that we need to see here uh, is a real effort to make sure that at the federal level, at a minimum, uh, we get the FBI, ATF, DEA, uh, DHS components and the like, any kind of federal law enforcement really needs to get a very close scrub uh, of their personnel to see whether or not they have any kind of ties or connections to white supremacist organizations or other organizations uh, that engage uh, in civil rights or attempted civil rights violations. I don't think that you can be a law enforcement officer in any level, but especially the federal level, uh, and, and do your job uh, in an unbiased way if you are in any way, shape, or form sympathetic to, much less a member of something like the Klan or the Order or uh, Aryan Circle or any of those kinds of organizations. I, I think it's just a non-starter. And it's it's not in any statute right now, and it's certainly for the most part really – you won't find it in FBI regulations and I've uh, or DHS regulations for that matter. And I've, I've written about this some. I plan to write about it more. Just real quick because uh, I know you mentioned um... – that there's been monitoring of black activists and Arab Americans. I haven't heard as much about um, the monitoring of Chinese Americans. It doesn't surprise me, um, especially given where U.S.-China relations are. But could you speak to that just briefly? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, this really became a major issue uh, from a public standpoint and a press standpoint in early November of 2018, when <clears throat> then Attorney General, uh, very short for the job, Jeff Sessions, I mean, short timer, uh, announced the so-called China Initiative. Uh, and that particular uh, program that was run out of DOJ and basically spearheaded by the FBI was really no, a little more than a racial profiling program looking at Chinese-American uh, researchers in, in the scientific, uh, technical, engineering, and mathematics fields uh, for any kind of links they might have to China. You know, whether or not there was actually a, a real espionage nexus or not. Uh, and this became, you know, a huge scandal for the Bureau. Um, they wrongly targeted, have wrongly targeted a number of Chinese-American scientists, uh, effectively defamed them, you know, publicly. Uh, and they've lost several key court cases, uh, you know, involving this. Um, so anyway, the Biden administration allegedly shut down the program uh, earlier this year. But in response to my uh, FOIA request on Cato's behalf, uh, for any kind of documents uh, dealing with the China Initiative, um, the FBI refused to provide anything, and the, the Department of Justice backed them up in that FOIA request. So we'll have to basically have a kind of an internal discussion here about whether or not that's something we're going to be in a position to litigate. Um, you know, when they when they decide to go to the wall on these things, it can be very difficult to actually win in federal court. Uh, but yeah, it, it's been a big deal, and and they've. You know, DOJ and the FBI have, have targeted, you know, Chinese Americans, uh, particularly those that are involved in, in the STEM fields for a very, very long time. You know, this goes, you know, back to the Wenho Lee case uh, in the Clinton administration and, and even earlier than that. Uh, so it's it's been, you know, a, a real problem. And of course, they've also even turned their sights on Chinese Americans and Asian Americans that are in the federal government, including the intelligence community. So, you know, I... I, you know, my Chinese American friends, they really feel under siege and I can completely understand why, because on the one hand, you know, if they speak out against the Chinese government, uh, Chinese agents operating on this soil will try to intimidate them. And that that's uh, Operation Fox. That's what actually the, the Chinese uh, operation is called. Um, and and if they, you know, basically try to 
assert their rights as American citizens here, uh, you know, they wind up running afoul of, of their employers, uh, you know, at the federal government, including the intelligence community. So, you know, I, I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for my friends in the Chinese American community. They're really kind of getting it from all sides and they're not getting nearly the uh, the kind of help from Congress that they should be. And the, and the administration, frankly, the Biden administration should be ashamed uh, of how they've you know mishandled this entire thing. But the fact that there still exists a China initiative investigative file uh, at the FBI, uh, that is something that should absolutely be the subject of an inquiry by the House and Senate Judiciary Committees. No question about that. Well, I want to thank you again, Patrick Eddington, for coming on Parallax Views. How can I listeners keep up with your work and uh, what do you hope they get out of this conversation? Well, you know, what I really hope that that your listeners come away with uh, is an understanding of the kind of threat that the FBI represents, you know, right now in its current form, at least, to the privacy and civil liberties and the constitutional rights of virtually every American. Um, this is an organization that's been out of control for decades. Uh, it's vitally in need of major league reform. Um, and I think, uh, you know, your, your listeners, you know, should really give some thought uh, to what they can do uh, to let their members of Congress and their senators know um, that letting the bureau run rampant is, is just simply not something that they want to see. And again, how can my listeners keep up with your work at, at the uh, Cato Institute and you also yeah. have a medium? Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, you know, if you go to the Cato website uh, and just click under experts and then you just scroll down and, and you'll see my smiling face. Uh, you can go to my bio page that has everything there, uh, essentially, that I write uh, on behalf of Cato. It also has links to the events that I've hosted uh, or been part of uh, and any other media interviews, such as this one, uh, that I've, I've conducted will also be there. So that's a great way. Um, I'm, I'm on Mastodon at this point. I still, I still have a Twitter presence, um, but uh, I'm on Mastodon. You can find me there at PG Eddington. Uh, if you want to follow me there, you can do that. I'm also on Instagram, same handle. Uh, but my official stuff uh, you'll find on the Cato website. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Jefferson Morley and Patrick Eddington. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerlax View to Parallax Jerlax View with Jerlax The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid.
I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.